I want to begin by sharing just briefly a story about a friend of mine named Brian. Some of you have heard me share a little bit about Brian along the way, but Brian was uh, my boss. He was the general manager at Jimmy John's in downtown Lincoln. And we met when I began delivering sandwiches there while we were in the process of planting uh, a church there in Lincoln. And Brian, uh, I quickly found out uh, that we were not on the same page spiritually. Uh, when word got out that we were starting a church, uh, Brian made a point of at least initially trying to make my life a little bit miserable. He was an atheist, and if you know anything about atheists, um, you know, there's different kinds. There's almost a spectrum of those who don't believe in in God. Some of them are very uh, you know, very level-headed about it. They just don't see the evidence for God. They just can't get themselves there. Uh, but then there are those who are much more passionate, often angry, often with some real hurt. Uh, and that's that's that was Brian. And so almost every time that we worked together, we would get in some conversation. I remember him asking me immediately um, how it felt to be an idiot. <laughs> Um, I remember uh, him asking me if I believed the same thing as the Fruit Loops on TV or the street preachers who would often preach right outside our Jimmy John's window. So that's kind of how our relationship began. And I remember one work shift, I was like, hey, man, let's not do this here. Like, let's grab breakfast. I would love to talk. So he took me up on that, and we had breakfast. And and I I really liked Brian. And soon uh, he started to, to warm up to me as well. And one breakfast turned into two, turned into three, uh, turned into lots and lots of breakfasts. And we began sharing. He would share with me some of, you know, the atheist authors and lecturers who'd had an impact on his thinking. And, and I would get to share with him some of the Christian thinkers and writers uh, who had influenced a lot of my thinking. And in time, Brian and I actually became really good friends. And I'll never forget the first Sunday he showed up at church. He didn't believe anything. He made that very clear to all of us. Uh, he didn't believe what we believed about a higher power or Jesus being that higher power, but he wanted to be supportive as a friend. And unfortunately, he, Brian didn't get to church very often, so he came decked out in a, a three-piece suit, and he was the only one there that was dressed up. Uh, but he started showing up on a regular basis to our worship gatherings, and he proudly called himself for a long time our resident atheist. Uh, then at one point, he started to really take interest in the person of Jesus and asked if if we could maybe, if I could get him a Bible and we could look at Jesus together. And so we started doing that and he started inviting other atheist friends and he began helping me write some of my, some of my sermons. And he was really captivated. Brian was really captivated by the person of Jesus. One of the things that I would often do is I would invite people who maybe weren't in the same place spiritually as we were, didn't believe the same things, to participate in uh, the month-long prayer and fasting series that we would do every year. And I encouraged Brian to join us that. And Brian faithfully fasted and prayed with us through those weeks. And one of the things that we found is every time we did this as a community, as an aside, uh, crazy things started happening. Right? You start focusing on prayer and pursuing the heart of God and asking for big things collectively. And may, probably not surprising, God starts saying yes to a lot of things. And he starts showing up in some really incredible ways. Also, there's a lot of spiritual warfare. 
And in the midst of one of these, Brian uh, and I were working through the book of Luke. He loved the book of Luke. Um, And he had been in prayer and he had a vision of Jesus. And he had this vision of Jesus and he was on the cross. And he said, Aaron, I got to tell you, I was thinking literally like right before this that I think I could actually be a pretty good Christian. And he had told me in previous conversations, he's like, I think I'm more Christian than many of the Christians I know because I actually love people and I care about people and, you know, these different things. I said, yeah, you're really humble too, Brian. Um, but he said, he, I got to a point where I really was thinking, I, th- I think I could be a pretty good Christian. I really do. And then he had this incredible personal encounter with the living Jesus. And he wouldn't describe it that way, but my man legit had a vision. And Jesus on the cross... He's hanging on the cross, and there was an empty cross right next to him. And he said, all right, Brian, this one's for you. If you're going to follow after me, you need to pick up your cross. Are you ready for this? And (laughs) Brian is like, I don't think I'm ready for that. Uh, And, you know, our journey continued. Our friendship has continued. But I'll I'll say this. um, I've had the chance of getting to serve in ministry and church planning for, for most of the last couple decades. And, and along the way, I've got to know a lot of Brian's and I was even thinking about this this, this past month in preparation for this. And I was just thinking, you know, I, I've had the chance to, to pray with practicing Wiccans. Um, I had a chance to, to worship with strippers, to take communion with members of the trans community. I've got to build churches with former Buddhists. Um, I've seen lifelong Jews come to recognize Jesus as Messiah. And I've gotten to study Jesus with staunch atheists and all people that, you know, we might not typically associate with church, but who had a transformational encounter with the living Jesus. And it changed the trajectory of their life. But here's the thing. Even those who chose not to follow Jesus, like my friend Brian, one of the things that I so appreciate and I think is so fascinating is even though Brian didn't come to put his faith in Jesus, at least not yet. He can be praying with me. I'm still praying for Brian. I love that dude. But he intuitively knew in reading the pages of the scriptures, reading the gospels, that if he was to follow after Jesus, it was going to cost something. That he would have to begin um, to align his life with the way of Jesus. And that would come with change And that would come with a certain cost, right? And so I met a lot of people like that along the way. And then we moved to the South and we experienced something here that we haven't really experienced before, at least not on the level that it exists in a place where there's such um, a a pre-existing religious memory, right? We, We moved here and began meeting parents and neighbors and uh, other gymnastics parents and parents at the school and began meeting these people. And as soon as they found out that I was in ministry, um, they would often feel like they needed to give me like their spiritual resume. Like, oh, my uncle is is a Methodist pastor, you know, or, or I was baptized at First B, you know, when I was 10 years old. But it seemed like every single person that we met self-identified as a Christian. But as we got to know them, we came to find out that while they might call themselves this, in many cases, it had little to no effect on how they lived their life Monday through Saturday. 
I mean, even even those who are committed enough to show up for a Sunday gathering with some kind of regularity, uh, there was there has become normalized simply being instead of Jesus worshipers and followers like Jesus fans. You know, like we're sitting in the in this in the in the bleachers, like cheering him on, you know, retweeting his stuff, singing songs, listening to some of his greatest hits on Sundays. And then bizarrely, we have normalized then living lives that are indistinguishable from those around us who who don't believe. And while there may have been a time where we could get away with this, uh, I think that time has passed. And I, I think the world has changed. And I think that the broader culture in in many cases, is calling our bluff for this kind of casual Christianity, sort of passive, half-hearted, a la carte spirituality thing. I know, I know for me, you've heard me share a little bit just about the experience of watching my generation walk away from the church and not come back to deconstruct and just leave. Um, and I think this is a huge part of the reason of why I know so many of my friends that I've seen do this have walked away is they they looked at the the lives of their parents or their friends' parents who who would show up to Sunday, but it really had no little to no noticeable difference on their everyday life. It's just like, why would I sign up for this if the only thing <laughs> that's going to affect is give me more things to feel guilty about? Right? We talked about uh, Gen Z and some of the recent stats about just uh, one in ten. Um, if we don't change anything, one in 10, uh, we can expect to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. Maybe. Most recent stats I've, I've seen just over the last four years, uh, from 2016 to 2020, 8 million people left the church in the U.S. Roughly 20% of evangelical Christians left during that four-year period of time. And and the thing is, like, it's heartbreaking. Like, as a pastor to share that, share that uh, it's heartbreaking and not just that so many have left. Equally heartbreaking is that so many had good reason to. All right, so where where did we possibly, how do we possibly get so far off? And if you've done the residency, you know our friend Alan Hirsch, and he's a guy like I, I, I love to, to quote um, has had a big impact on me over the years as a good friend. But he says this, and I think he's right. He says, we have collapsed our Christology into soteriology. In other words, somewhere along the way, Jesus became Savior, but he stopped being Lord to many. Somewhere along the way, we substituted admiration of Jesus in place of radical discipleship in the way of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we started being Jesus fans instead of Jesus followers. And so this is a big part of the reason why we are beginning this journey uh, pressing into the person of Jesus. Because it seems to me, if we are to risk, rediscover what it means to be faithful, if our kids are going to have anything left resembling a faith community that brings them life and draws them to the living Jesus, like if we're to have any hope of escaping the trappings of 2,000 years of organized religion and its baggage— and instead walk and experience the life-giving presence and work of Jesus, the real Jesus, 
uh, we've got to get back to the source and look closely and deeply at this Jesus as he truly is. And so as we began, you know, one of the things that we began with uh, this last time we were together is we began looking at how Jesus was experienced by those who knew him best, who walked with him, who were taught by him, who were discipled by him. And we find that, yes, Jesus is Lord and he is Savior and he is Son of God and he is the sent one and he is King. But to those who knew him best, who walked with him and learned from him in the rhythm of everyday life, he was also rabbi. He was rabbi. Right? And the goal, as we said, and I won't get into this too much again, but the goal in the rabbi-discipleship relationship was not just amassing some more knowledge. Uh, it wasn't just growing a theological understanding. It was to become, become shaped by your rabbi, to become just like your rabbi. You would follow after him. You would seek to walk as he walked and talk as he talked, to speak blessings that, that he spoke, to sing the Psalms the way that he sang the Psalms, to pray as he prayed, to, to interpret and apply the scriptures and the heart of God in the way that that particular rabbi did, right? And so there was this ancient blessing that came out of that that said to a student, to a rabbi, to a Talmud, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So here's a question I want to put before us, because I think it's a really important one. And it's this, for you, practically, functionally, who is your rabbi? Because the thing is, you've got one. Who is your rabbi? To, to whom have you given authority? From whom do you get your information about life and, and how it works? Who, who gets the final word? And here's the thing. If you don't make this choice intentionally, you will make it unintentionally. If you don't make this choice on purpose, you will make it inadvertently. And this choice affects everything. I mean, how you answer this question, who is functionally, practically, really your rabbi will affect just about everything about where you go, what you do, where you end up, and who you become. So I'll ask you again, who's your rabbi, friends? What informs your decisions, shapes your values, determines your convictions? Where do you get your information on things like sexuality or healthy relationships or what you do with your money? Who gets the last word? And I probably don't have to tell you this, but there are a lot of rabbis out there to whom I've been given a lot of authority who will happily take your time and attention and shape how you think. I mean, from Jordan Peterson to Bill Maher, from QAnon to Ben Shapiro, from Netflix and Bridgerton or whatever the next show is, thinking, you know, shaping the way that we think and process and understand healthy relationships to political leaders, parties, and the agendas they represent, from friends and coworkers to perhaps simply yourself. Who is your rabbi? I think it's a really important life question that we have to revisit from time to time. And one of the things that we find is that Jesus is different than other rabbis. All right, for one, as we 
Saul, he chooses his Talmudim. Unheard of, but he chooses his Talmudim, right? And, and when the, in those moments when, when they would feel as though maybe they don't have what it takes and maybe they really can't follow in the dust of this rabbi, he would say things like, hey, remember, you did not choose me like every other Talmudim. I chose you. And the second thing we found is that he seems to take special delight in choosing the not good enoughs, right? The people who didn't make it, didn't make the cut, not the smartest of smart or the brightest of the bright, from fishermen and tax collectors to, to, to women, to uh, members of, of other races who had been historically kind of disincluded in many cases from what God was up to in the world. But there's another way in which Jesus is different than other rabbis. And this is what we read in Mark 1. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus came into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Well, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want from us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, and come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently, and he came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed, there's that word again, that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? He even gives order to impure spirits, and they obey him course, as we study the person of Jesus, this is something we find time and time again. Throughout his life and his ministry, he moves and things start to happen that people can't explain. Things that people have never seen before. And he teaches, and we're told time and again that the people were amazed for this teacher teaches with authority. Right? There was something about this Jesus and the way that he taught. For he taught as one having authority, not as the teachers of the law. You know, I was I always thought like maybe this was a reference to like boldness or, you know, chutzpah, like the the gravitas of his just conviction uh, and the passion with which he preached. Uh, and maybe Jesus had this and and the other, you know, teachers did not, but it's not really uh, what it means. Right? When Jesus comes onto the scene. Uh, again, the goal of a rabbi to a student was to pass down the yoke of that rabbi. So that'd be the way that this person interprets the law and applies it to everyday life. And typically teachers of law, like they didn't come up with their own stuff. They they were traditions that were passed down uh, through generations and generations. And when a rabbi was looking for a Talmudim, he was always asking, can this person become like me? Right? Because they're going to carry on my legacy and this tradition, this yoke uh, of teaching the law. But when Jesus shows up, he's not like other rabbis. Again, we find he has a new yoke. Right? He has a new interpretation on the heart of God and how to apply the heart of God. Right? And he wasn't just, and here's the thing, he wasn't just blowing up God's law. No, no, no. He was pulling back the layers, right? He was rotating it ever so slightly and walking 360 degrees around it and highlighting the heart of God, like shining a light on the heart of God and showing people what has, in many cases, always been there. He taught as one having authority. 
right? And the Hebrew word for this is samiha. The crowds were amazed, we read as his teaching, because he taught as one who had samiha and not as their teachers of the law, who are always, you know, quoting somebody else. Like, well, I think Rabbi Hoyes would probably answer it like this, or well, according to Rabbi Hillel, he would say this. Now, Jesus, right, he, he would say things like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, right? Every time he said that, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, what he's doing in that moment is he's practicing samiha. So by the time we get to the Sermon on the Mount, um, he's doing this all the time, practicing samiha, right? He says, you know, you've heard it said, uh, do not commit murder. But I tell you, it's not just about murder. It's really about anger. Or you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you what, it's not just about that. I tell you, it's really about lust. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But Jesus says, that, well, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when he's finished, we are told that people were amazed because he spoke as one having samiha. Right, Jesus had Samiha on a level that people had never seen before. And we're told in Mark 28, the news then about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And people began coming from miles to be near him and to hear the words that came out of his mouth. And here's the thing, as Jesus practiced Samiha and he taught this yoke of Jesus, he, he said some strange things. <laughs> about his, his yoke. You know, he didn't sound like other rabbis. We read this, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. This is like one of my anchor passages that I just keep coming back to in different phases of life. It speaks so deeply to me and to the heart of Jesus. This is what we read. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I want us so badly to hear what those words would have sounded like to its original audience. Because, the, right, this is not how rabbis talked, right? How do did, how did rabbis talk, right? If anything, it was more like, come to me, you who are exceptional, right? The smartest of the smart, the brightest of the bright. Come to me, you who get straight A's and in all honors classes. Those who can cut it, those who can hang with the best, those who can perform at an optimal level when called upon, and maybe maybe I'll let you follow me. But no, Jesus is saying something so different. He is fleshing out with authority a completely different kind of yoke. I mean, one of the burdens you got to understand for those in Jesus's time and place is there were all these traditions, right? There are all these traditions of, of teachings, of yokes that were being passed down. And the question that had to be, it was uh, exhausting, and heavy is who's who's right right who's whose yoke is the real correct one like which one is is right exactly and reflective of the heart of god and so you've got all these groups within judaism with a different take and and some of those groups were all about crossing the t's dotting the i's on every little 
nook and cranny of the law, right? And they kept raising the bar of, of how you had to perform in order to be faithful, right? And so many of you, you guys already know, like they began adding rules to build kind of hedges around the law just to make sure you never even get close to potentially violating the law of God. In some circles, you can participate. You could not even participate in worship if you're certainly if you were poor because they had made it so stinking expensive for you to participate. Oftentimes, if you were a woman, uh, your the amount that you could actually participate in and, and um, be a part of was very, very limiting, right? And, and so and to a point, it was almost inaccessible for certain groups within the population of God's people. And then, and then this Jesus shows up. He steps on the scene, the one with Samiha unlike anyone had ever seen, because his Samiha comes straight from the Father. <laughs> he is God's son, and he says, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Like, come to me, you know what you will experience? Not guilt, not shame, not condemnation, not hate, not distance from the Father. Oh, no. Come and take a breath and find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. <laughs> what kind of grace is this? What kind of rabbi is this? I'll tell you what it is. At the very least, it is a rabbi with a message of authority and a message of hope. Hope for the hopeless, for the underperformer, the outcast, the not good enough, the not spiritual enough, uh, the, the outlier, the forgotten, the walked on, the walked over, to overlooked fishermen, to undervalued women, to young, old. Jesus says, I am calling you, Lahakarai, come follow me. So I want to ask you again who is your rabbi? And I'm going to cut out a bunch of examples here that I gave. Uh, if you can't tell, I can I can be I can be a little long-winded. And so I'll just say this: really functionally, who who is your rabbi? And I offer to you, friends, Jesus. And I tell you, there is no greater rabbi. You will not find a rabbi who is more good, full of grace and truth. You will not find a rabbi who is more life-giving or coming not to steal, kill, or destroy as the enemy does, but in order that those who follow after him in his dust might have life and have it to the full. And you will not find a rabbi more full of samiha, for his authority comes straight from the Father, and with that authority, great power. You know, to quote Dave Johnson, when this rabbi speaks, demons obey. And when he spoke to a storm, it quieted. When he speaks to disease, it flees. When he spoke to death, it died. This rabbi has authority and power. And so who's your rabbi? And I'll, I'll just close with this. Yeah, I, I don't think that the world needs more fans of Jesus. I really don't. And I, I honestly don't think that Jesus is really all that interested in our applause from the stands at the end of the day. I think the world needs, our neighborhoods need, our families need people who are increasingly marked by this rabbi, a community of prophets and professional lovers who are committed to be covered in the dust of this rabbi Jesus and walking in his way 
and his invitation has been and continues to be to both you and I. Lahakarai, come follow me. Grace and peace, friends. <laughs>